0: Welcome to ESG Energize, where we discuss the latest developments in the environmental, social, and governance arena that are impacting the energy industry today. Here is your host, Delfina Govia.
1: This is Delfina Govia, the Chief Sustainability Officer for FRAC a global logistics provider with an unflinching commitment to sustainability and ESG, and where we are collaborating with our customers and our suppliers to deliver innovative, sustainable supply chain solutions. ESG Energized Audience, Oil & Gas Global Network has launched an exciting new show called The Energy Pipeline. It is hosted by the fabulous Jordan Yates and co-hosted by representatives from Caterpillar a company that has been supplying mission-critical equipment to our industry for as long as I can remember. This week, I took a break from recording my show to be a guest on her show on the topic of the carbon footprint. I'm sharing that episode with you here now and encourage you to listen to her show that you can find on any platform that you find my show on. Enjoy.
2: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Energy Pipeline. Today I'm here with my co-host Lizzie Hurt and our guest Delphina Govia. Delphina is the chief sustainability officer for a global logistics company and a podcast host. Delvina, or sorry, Delvina. Delphina, say hello.
1: Hello. And also Jordan, (laughs) I've been working in the oil industry for 43 years. So I am so glad to see your show uh, airing on the Oil & Gas Industry Network and I'm a pleasure to have a chance to talk to Lizzie Hurt who works for an organization that has been supporting our oil and gas industry for decades, right?
2: Yes, it's going to be so much fun. If you guys have not listened to Delfina's podcast, you need to because her energy is so much fun to listen to, and we have a joke between podcast hosts like, oh, we don't listen to each other's shows, but I actually listen to hers, so I would recommend it. Um, Okay, so today (laughs) we're going to be talking about unveiling the carbon footprint. So I'm just going to ask you a pretty plain and simple question to get going, which is what is a carbon footprint and why is it a significant concern in the context of the oil and gas industry?
1: So a carbon footprint is basically a measurement of what an organization's greenhouse gas emissions are. And when we talk about that, we talk about, I'm going to use some language that people keep hearing just so that these buzzwords uh, are are in their heads and they understand what what it means. When you talk about greenhouse gas emissions, normally people hear them in the context of scope one, Scope 2 and Scope 3. And let me just explain a little bit more. What is Scope 1? Scope 1 emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, are emissions that occur from direct operations that an organization has. So whatever you are doing that you have control of, if emissions are coming, greenhouse gas emissions are coming off of that, that's your Scope 1. Scope two is emissions that are created by the source of power that you are consuming. So if I, in my home, to make it really simple, if I'm buying natural gas from my home, from the utility company here in Houston, Texas, and they use a fossil fuel to power that utility to create that energy, that scope to emissions is my scope to emissions for a company. So when a company buys energy, however that energy is produced, that's your scope to emissions. And scope three is anything that happens within your supply chain that is then once more removed. As an example, if I am a company and I am purchasing transportation services, and that trucking company that is delivering transportation services for me is driving down the road and their trucks are emitting carbon dioxide into the air, that would be scope three emissions. So scope one, scope two, scope three, add those all together and that's your carbon footprint. That sounds like a nightmare to have to track. Oh, yeah, baby. Especially (laughs) since the majority of organizations' emissions are scope three, which they have the least amount of control over.
0: Wow. Oh, that's really interesting to hear. I would have thought the focus would have been mostly on scope one. Is that, I guess that's not true. Well,
1: you used used an important word there, and the the word there of, of focus. So... What organizations have concentrated on most immediately is absolutely their scope one because it's what they can control. It is what they are going to be asked about if they are, let's say, a publicly traded company, their shareholders may want to know. If they have investors beyond just the shareholders, if they have Other organizations, companies that are investing in them, they're going to be asked mainly about those Scope 1 emissions. And other other stakeholders like customers are going to ask about your Scope 1 emissions. What are you causing to be emitted into the environment? And that's where they have focused the most on. However, they are still quite concerned with the Scope 3 emissions and yes, focused, but not as much on their scope, too, by making <clears throat> more intelligent solutions about how they are securing their energy sources.
2: Delfina, would you say, since you work at a logistics company, that the scope three is something that would be in your focus there? Is that, am I following that correctly, or is that not related there?
1: So, in a logistics company, we are everybody's scope three. Okay. Right? So it's not about um, us, our own scope three. It's about the fact that we are everybody else's scope three. And so organizations that need to understand that scope three, mitigate that scope three, we have to partner with them to help them put together the roadmap that's going to get them to... Their whatever their goals are, whether they have declared that they want to be net zero or carbon neutral, or simply that they're going to do whatever effort they're going to put in place efforts and plans to to reduce. So we are everybody's scope three.
2: Wow, well, that's a very big responsibility and kind of cool because you do get to see the layer that seems so obscure to everybody else. So I imagine that your views on sustainability and you know, the, the coin term of energy transition is a bit more knowledgeable than the common person, considering the fact that you do look at every layer of it. Um, what would you say when we are addressing the term of energy transition is that typically looking at all three layers or all three scopes or absolutely. Okay. Could you explain like how this transitions actually, affecting those on the different levels? Sure. Um, so, we...
1: Let me let me go back to the scope two and the scope three emissions. Scope two is... The majority of it is how organizations procure their energy source, right? So, let's go back to power plants. Power plants have... Uh, are powered by a number of things. Uh, Natural gas, fossil fuels, coal, uh, nuclear, right? That's how they're powered. And to be able to reduce emissions, to be able to have an energy transition, what it means there is to find renewable energy sources that can feed into the production of power of energy of utilities and not just not just uh, electricity, but, you know, um, uh, steam that is used in industrial processes. Uh, Hydropower is an example of a way of a renewable energy source. Solar is a renewable energy source, Uh, wind, a renewable energy source using that to power the production of electricity instead of the what are considered dirtier options is a big focus in the energy transition, transitioning away from dirtier fuels, non-renewable fuels to renewable fuels. Then in scope three, what we are looking at is especially if we're talking about the, the energy transition, the energy industry, we're looking primarily at the transportation space and what renewable sources can be applied in transportation. Unfortunately, you don't have solar-powered trucks, right? <laughs> you don't have solar-powered cars. <laughs> but we're talking about electric vehicles, right, that are running off of an electric battery which is stored energy as opposed to using gasoline in your, in, in your vehicle, right? Same thing with ships. In ships where we, we have a huge move towards new ships coming online using LNG as a source of fuel. Um, you are using... Bunker fuel is probably the dirtiest... Of the fossil fuels that we have, you know of of the of the diesel fuels that we have. It's kind of mm-hmm. nasty, dirty stuff. You know how do you improve the emissions off of that sort of thing? And we're moving towards biofuels. We're investing in other renewable fuels uh, to see what might actually ammonia is on the table. Methanol is on the table. As a matter of fact, Caterpillar, we've got Lizzie on the call, Caterpillar has now created a an engine that is a dual fuel. It can be upgraded, easily upgraded to use be used with methanol in, in ships, right? And motors that they're they're doing that with. So in the energy transition, it's transitioning away from the use of dirtier fuels to renewable sources of fuel.
2: I like that. I like that there's more options. I think sometimes we get a little focused on one versus the other and that they're all working like it's a competition, but I think it's just enhancing the options we have now and adding different layers and, I I like all the new energy options. I think they're cool because it feels like a bunch of scientists got together and are like, how else can we make things work? How else can we bring power? So to me, anytime, even if it's renewable or not, I think any source of new energy is exciting. Um, Lizzie, was there something you wanted to ask Delphina?
0: Yeah, so in that answer, Delphina, you you talked about, you touched on scope two and scope three, at least to my ears. Uh, so it sounded like Scope 2 and Scope 3. Let's let let's go back to Scope 1 and I really want to uh, dive into maybe a little bit more about the oil and gas sector. So if we take a step back, can you ex- help explain the major sources of carbon emissions within the oil and gas sector uh, that fall into the Scope 1 category in different uh, areas like upstream, midstream, and downstream?
1: Absolutely. So first before I, I answer that question directly, I'm going to... to to make this comment. The oil and gas industry is beat up the most of all industries when we're talking about the a carbon footprint, when we're talking about emissions, when we're talking about the energy transition. And what is not well understood is that the emissions, the direct emissions, and this is why I'm glad you asked the question, Lizzie, about the scope one emissions coming off of of the energy industry, upstream, midstream, downstream, the scope one emissions, what we actually emit in the oil and gas industry. Remember, I'm 43 years in this industry and I love it to death. The the emissions from direct oil and gas operations is minimal, minimal, compared to the use of the production of the industry as an energy source in everything else that does not mean that in the oil industry we have not taken responsibility if you will in understanding and trying to come up with better solutions and advancing renewable fuels and and, and other options to reduce carbon footprint for others uh, but that's why we get beat up we get beat up not because of what we're actually producing ourselves but because the product of our efforts is the main energy source. 84% of the world's energy comes from from oil and gas. So back to your question, Lizzie, about what exactly are our emissions in the space. In upstream, 60% of the scope one for upstream comes from, emissions comes from upstream. And that is primarily around the topic of methane if you will see, we have had a number of methane summits. The methane mitigation summit just occurred recently. I unfortunately didn't go to that. The methane mitigation summit occurred last year, which I was at with Bells on. We actually did a podcast. So you guys can look look at the the two episode, I think it was it was two episodes on my show, and Joe Battier on energy transition did also an episode on his show around the methane mitigation conference. But it is around the methane emissions coming off of oil and gas productions, and that's primarily around uh, flaring, venting, and fugitive emissions that come off of, I don't want to get technical on everybody, but devices, compressors, uh, that that the gas escapes, right? The methane escapes. So that is 60% in upstream. That's where it's mainly from. In midstream, it is, again, a lot around methane and some fugitive emissions, but also uh, the fact that we burn fossil fuels in our compressor stations and our compressors at our compressor stations to to move product through pipelines. And 15% of our scope one emissions in oil and gas come off of midstream. And now downstream... Downstream again is, is also there's there's refining, there's petrochemicals. Um, to be able to produce, to refine product, to produce petrochemicals, there is a tremendous amount of energy required, and we use fossil fuels in the refining of products and in the production of of. Uh, Uh, petrochemicals. There is also uh, some combustion, there is also flaring, there's emissions again, fugitive emissions that come off of processes, leaks, venting, and I would say that the downstream sector if I do my math correctly is about 25% of our scope one. But these are all things that are manageable if as we, I'm not saying if, it is all manageable that we are attacking fiercely in the oil industry today.
2: There are, correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a while since I've done this specifically, methods when it comes to these gases we emit, for example, flaring, I used to work for a facilities company and they sold big on zero smoke flares and they're saying like there's a safer way to flare and then there's a bad way to flare and companies get really like hounded on regulations for flaring. Would you say that within the industry, there are sort of nuances where you can make the bad things a little less bad, a little less emitting, or is it more propaganda of like, yeah, we're flaring less bad or is it always bad? or should in when i say bad i mean <laughs> emitting like is it still if you have no smoke in your flare are you still emitting just as much or is removing the smoke actually helping
1: okay removing the smoke is helping uh, okay period the end even even if even if it's just to make people feel better so let's also let's also remember there's a couple of components to this there are so many topics within this space, so many topics within this space that are public perception. And as you pointed out, jo- Jordan, there are many instances where public perception and and the truth uh, may be worlds apart. <laughs> but it doesn't matter because we're the big bad oil industry and everybody hates us no matter what, um, period, the end. Because we don't have big public relations departments that are, you know, trying to make us look good. It's just not, we've always done the right thing. We've always done good things. But back to your question. On the topic of 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 flaring, there are new technologies in place that have allowed us to dramatically improve our operations across the board. Venting, flaring, et cetera, et cetera. We have locations in the United States, for example, Colorado, where there is a zero, zero flaring venting rule. It's like, "You thou, thou shalt not." And companies have done a the companies that operate in that state um, have, have risen to the occasion and reduced their, their emissions. There are other locations across the country that do not live in thou shalt not states that have also dramatically improved their uh, their emissions by incorporating new technologies, new processes. But I think that what we're t- we're touching on here, it's not a matter of just public perception. There's also an economic component to to all of this. And it's a topic that we are, we are, are continuing to wrestle with as, as an industry and not just as an industry, as a planet. It's a broader topic of the economics of it all. And how, what does that do to our industry when we put regulations in place or we put goals in place that do not allow the little guy to continue to do business. So the big companies, the big boys, are able to invest in the technologies to improve their operations from an emissions standpoint. However, that doesn't mean that smaller companies, especially when the price of oil is lower, that have the economic power to put in place some of the, the options and the tools that others have. And I th- also think that as we're having this, we're having this discussion, what it takes to really do this properly is not completely well understood. It's not that. Oh well, they're flaring. Tell them to stop it. it it's not that simple. Sure it is. We're not, <laughs> sure it is. Just stop it. We'll just stop using fossil fuels for everything. All righty then. Let's <laughs> let's not even go there. I mean, all these environmentalists. You know, you you you're still wearing clothing. You're still using cups. You're still sleeping on a bed that you know there's a byproduct some way somehow of you know the fossil fuels at its core the petrochemicals that make the plastics and everything that we do right so let's not even start on that don't get me on my soap opera
2: girl but, i could go all yeah. day <laughs>
1: <laughs> and people they don't want to hear it they just don't no. want to hear it go listen to uh, episode
2: 3 though we talk about petrochemicals okay. so if you want to be exhausted oh, girl, by it was yeah. yeah it's good <laughs> it was good but i i feel you there
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's there's there's a whole other aspect to this and I don't, again, I talk about the, the lack of public relations within the oil industry, that it's just not a forte of ours. Our forte is doing the most difficult thing known to man. What we do every single day in the oil industry, okay, my listeners out there, shut up, you've heard me say this before. We, what we do every single day in the oil industry is harder than putting a man on the moon. It is more difficult than putting a man on the moon. What it takes for us to do what we do is impossible if if anyone sits down and describes to you what we do they're gonna like oh my god that's not possible it's like yeah we do so in not only in the complexity the technical complexity of what we do to pull oil out of the ground out of the bottom of the ocean miles beneath the 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 surface right that technology needs to be advanced and needs to be improved And there are numerous efforts that are exterior to the oil industry, but inside the oil industry, we're improving technologies to be able to do do, uh, more with combating uh, uh, GHG emissions, climate change. On top of that, there are what they call IoT, information uh, technology, that is being applied to the space, in the form of sensors that allow us, detection systems that allow us to detect, that allow us to then take that information, that data, and manage it. So you can't do anything if you don't measure something. So measuring, managing, monitoring, all that technology, that data coming together so that it's not like, oh, we've got a leak, let's go stop it, but the predictive analytics involved to present prevent emissions before it's happening this is a very complicated space that is requiring the efforts of not only the great technical petroleum technical minds at play but technical minds from other disciplines right in in the world of information technology and even in in talking about ai you will this episode will air after one with Malor Narayan, who went and spoke to the UN um, AI group in Geneva about how do you take AI, artificial intelligence, build digital twins to manage your emissions, let's say in a refinery. That level of investment is not available to everybody in the picture. So there it's a struggle that we have to overcome to recognize that those that have are doing but those that don't have as much are going to suffer.
2: I, I think it's frustrating sometimes that so much of the issues in this world come down to like the socioeconomic aspect and I think the best and easiest to understand, um, saying that I've heard that you guys could relate to this is if you ever watch anything with the Kardashians, there is this thing that says, you're not ugly. You're just broke. (laughs) So it's like, it's not that you aren't pretty Mm -hmm. naturally. It's just that you couldn't get a nose job and your face redone and all of that. And I feel that way about a lot of industries, especially oil and gas. And it's like you said, for the smaller companies or the ones that are stretched thin because of all the regulations already put on them, giving them less bandwidth to actually go in the R&D lab and figure out better ways to improve what they're doing and then also trying to find money to spend on PR to get people off their backs for a second so they can actually focus on R&D. I feel like sometimes it just comes down to the money aspect and... At the end, it's it, it can be frustrating because, you know, we have these big ideas that we want the world to be a better place. We want it to be sustainable, but it all comes at a cost. And then we have to weigh, well, what's the cost a safer planet or having more money and it, everything costs money. And I, I think sometimes we just have to step back and chill out a bit and see how we can actually help the the problem because i feel like rather than being attacked by standard environmentalists what if we spent more of that energy on actually improving the existing technology and of course it's all uh, you know a, uh, a a dreamer's thought of like oh what if we could all just work together but i think that these energy topics in the media are good conversation starters and i appreciate people like you, Delphina, who can actually speak to both sides of it and wanting to improve while also understanding the logistics that go into these improvements. And I love how you broke it down into the three different zones so we could actually conceptualize it because I think as individuals, we are all in our own Zone 1s and perhaps we can't all contribute to the Zone 2 or 3, but Zone 1 is where I guess we could start. And is there a way that you could suggest... Small changes to where we could be effective in our zone ones.
1: Well, I would. So it's so you're bringing up a really important point about the economics of the whole thing, and what we have to do is we have to pull into this conversation. Um, not actually, since we don't have anybody, we can just call on the phone and get them on this call. But what we need to pull into the conversation is the is the finance community, right? And one of the things that we heard we heard repeatedly during Sierra week was the economic investment, the financial the investment from the financial community that has to go into this space. So the financial community has invested quite heavily into renewable fuels, into different types of technologies that are going to that are that are going to improve um, in the energy transition. but where are the, where's that investment going? Are we seeing that investment going into third world nations? Maybe not. So, so the answer is no it's not. Um and so when you talk who's going to take if you're going if you're somebody with that's if you're an investor you're going to invest where you're going to get the biggest return on your money and perhaps a third world nation is not where it's going to be and so we heard uh, from representatives from oil companies, national oil companies from other parts of the world, saying, "You know, you guys are putting all your, you finance guys are putting all your money into the first world nations, and yet you, everybody wants to beat up on us over here when our oil industry is what sustains our country, and so all of this talk and not none of the financial investment that is coming over here, and it's just basically." We're we're getting we're getting beat up for something, and we're not getting the support that support that we need from very much from a capitalistic perspective. right? So, you know, that i I just have to say that that there is a whole other aspect to to this conversation, which is the the financial community. And then, down to who bears the cost ultimately, and that is the consumer. So, when you ask the question, Jordan, of what can we do on our scope one ourselves, do you mean as individuals, or are you talking about uh, the the oil an oil company in and of itself?
2: I, I guess I'm asking more as an individual because as the listeners hear this, maybe they want an action item of something that they can actually feel like they're contributing. Um, I don't know if it's as simple as recycling or, it you is. Know, uh, only, what is it? If it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. (laughs) I read that in a book when I was in like elementary school and it stuck with me. I have to admit, I don't do that, but um, I've heard it's effective. Is is there anything that you would say on a personal level that we could do that you would say is very effective?
1: Let me tell you the very first thing that we need to do. And that is, again, my listeners, shut up. You've heard me say this before on my show. Um, the very first thing that we need to do is we need to go, we need to start with the children. Uh, This, it is not that the energy itself is the problem. It's the fact that human beings are acting and behaving in ways that are causing problems. Right? So it all starts with ourselves in how we behave. do we behave responsibly? but we have to start with the children. We have to start with, uh, with educating children and not in a scary, uninformed way. So an organization that I showcase on my show is called Self, Children's Education Literacy Foundation. OK, Lisa, I know I probably messed that up, but it's self, CELF. C-E-L-F. And what they do is they go into into schools and they work with teachers and they provide them with scientific tools so that children can study topics of sustainability and it educates them and it allows children to understand right from a very early age what the energy transition is about, what opportunities there are there there are for them to uh, to contribute as young members of society. society. And then from there. We are going to grow the young people that then go into industry that that lead us forward. And then from an individual perspective is we need to stop pointing fingers, stop arguing, and figure out ways – that we can have open and honest dialogues and work together. And then, yes, take personal responsibility. Do I personally recommend that everybody go out and buy an electric vehicle? No, I don't. I, we're not going to get on that topic. <laughs> and it's and it has nothing to do with the fact that I've worked in the oil industry for 43 years and I still want everybody to buy gasoline or that my fact that my child is graduating with a petroleum and engineering degree next year. Right. So it has nothing to do with that. I have my own issue with electric vehicles and batteries and the whole infrastructure. It is having, we as individuals need to have intelligent conversations because as citizens of the United States of America, we need to understand what our lawmakers are talking about, what they're doing, what they're putting in place. And hopefully, as a society, we can ask for the governmental support that we really, truly need to advance and also remember how incredibly privileged we are in this country and that things that make sense in our heads here do not make sense for people in other parts of the world. That have no options, so let's really truly be good global citizens. Global citizens.
2: Insert slow clap. <laughs> <laughs> Lizzie, how do you feel about all of this? I know we're getting close to our time. But I'd love to hear your thoughts and any remaining questions you have for Delphina.
0: Yeah, I, I like you made a lot of really good points there, Delphina, and I. Honestly, like liked hearing about the the self-CELF organization, you know, targeting children, getting them to think about that because, you know, even from me trying to get kids excited about STEM, you know, you've got to go to the the the, the level of – you've got to get the kids excited, you know, getting more women in engineering. You know, that's a 20-year-long problem type deal. So I think that's great is with a sustainability standpoint, going and, like, targeting uh, – getting children to think about that. I think that's a really, really great point. Um, I know I think that's pretty – Good, Jordan.
2: I know. I feel like sometimes I don't even actually need questions because Delphina, you get to so many good points on your own, and that's why I love having podcasters on my podcast because they understand how to formulate it all on their own. So it's it's wonderful. I I liked having you as a guest. It was very exciting and. I don't know if it's because my air conditioning is really low or because you've been inspiring me, but I keep getting the chills. So it's, it's been fun. Um, Delphina, one last question before we started, you were giving us tips or recommendations of other good podcast episodes that touched on some of these subjects. Could you plug those for the listeners now and tell them what they should listen to if they want to hear more on this discussion?
1: So I... Absolutely would recommend that if anybody wants to understand, learn about geothermal as a wonderful, wonderful option. Listen to Joe Batier's Energy Transition podcast. Joe is fabulous. He explores a number of different topics in the world of energy transition. Look up Joe Batier Energy Transition that's on the Oil and Gas Global Network Um Elena Mel- Melkert, from, who does our Upstream podcast, she's also a good source. On my particular show, I would recommend people listen in to uh, a couple of folks that really honed in on the challenges. The first one would be, listen to Jane Stricker, who is the Executive Director of HETI, Houston Energy Transition Initiative. Houston Energy Transition Initiative is part of the Greater Houston Partnership, and it is focused on all that we need to do as an industry, bringing people together to continue to promote the fact that we are the we are here in Houston Texas the energy transition capital of the world listen to Jane get involved with Hetty uh, is another recommendation and then i would also listen to my other show with cosma panzaki who is the senior vice president of strategy and sustainability for siemens energy he does a brilliant job of talking about how As a senior executive at one of the most recognized and influential companies in this world, how he is tackling... The challenge of sustainability within his organization. There are two, and then of course there's a a million and one episodes on different types of of uh, technologies, new technologies that are coming to bear. There's one from the guys from Catalyst and and Gardner Denver that partnered on this really cool hydraulic fracking direct drive uh, 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 solution for for fracking it's fantastic. So yeah, that's what I would say is listen to those podcasts, listen to Joe, listen to Elena, a bunch of mine, and of course yours, Jordan.
2: (laughs) I was going to say, you better plug me in my own podcast. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Well, guys, thank you so much for listening today. I hope you learned something and I hope we were also able to entertain you a bit. Uh, My name is Jordan Yates and I'll see you next week.
0: Join us again next week on the ESG Energized podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.